If you would, remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. This is our fifth exposition of the text of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. I will lead us in prayer and then I'll begin reading that text from verse 18. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is in Jesus' name we gather not only to worship you, but Lord, to hear from you, that you would come and Lord, fill our minds and our hearts with truth. You would come and Lord, as our great father and correct us and Lord, challenge us, rebuke us. Lord, show us our, our ways that need amending. And Lord, make us faithful. Let the things we hear this morning, Lord, find its way in our hearts, that we would make it a practice, Lord, not just, not just a doctrine, but a practice, that we would be well-rounded in Christ. Now, Father, I also pray for those that are here that have not yet come to Christ. Lord, let this day be a day of salvation. Let them be motivated. Let them be moved by the love of God, his mercies. And let them come and embrace Jesus for their salvation and for the great reward of eternal life. And we pray this, Lord, in your great name. Amen. Begin reading at verse 18. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, who then can be saved? And he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife our brothers, our parents, our children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, you see the title in your bulletin, Eternal Life Not Easily Gained. I could not think of 
any other fitting title than that one. I'm not very good with the titles. I'm better with the content. And yet that was the one thing that I came up with after putting all of my notes together. And I think the point being is this, that the rich young ruler certainly represents that person that is just so close to eternal life, but yet not in possession of it. And when finding out what is needed to gain eternal life, it's too costly. It's too expensive, even though the rich young ruler is a person of great means, the text tells us. Luke even puts in the text that he was extremely rich. Even among the rich, he stands head and shoulders above the normal rich society. And yet he's unwilling to pay the price for that which he came to Jesus seeking after, which was good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's another aspect of this that I want to touch on as we work through verse 22 and following. That is, heavenly treasure does require an earthly investment. A heavenly treasure does require earthly investment. That means if we're going to inherit the next life, the good of the next life, which is heaven, eternal life. I mean, those who are in torment will live eternally too, but not in the sweet presence of God for sure, but in his judgment. But if we're going to possess that favor of God, that goodness of God, that eternal goodness of God, it requires of us here and now those who are alive on earth, an investment. And we're going to talk about that. And of course, we're going to have to contend with this idea of free grace and easy believism because those two things certainly are challenging to the Christian mindset. And many Christians have sort of fallen into those two pitfalls. Certainly grace is free, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. So let's talk about, again, these two things. Now, I said there's two kinds of people, or at least there's, there's the one person that's very close to eternal life, a good person, a moral person. I mean, they're right there next to it but they don't possess eternal life. The text certainly is, that's the purpose of the text, to reach out to those who are of that good stock, that good moral stock, and, and penetrate their own minds and their own hearts to tell them and to notify them that they too are in need of Jesus, that their good works no matter how impressive among men, will not be good enough 
for them to inherit eternal life. So it's that person is, all, is addressed primarily in the text, but there's another person addressed in the text or another kind of person. It's the one that already has eternal life. And maybe that's the majority of you here this morning. That has somehow along the way in their service of Christ have become not indifferent, but doubting. And there, again, we see this when our Lord tells the rich young ruler, Notice right there in verse 23 says, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Look at verse 26. And they heard it said, these are the disciples. Well, who can be saved? And then they needed an affirmation. They needed some type of confirmation to this. And Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. You can see that there, Peter is now in possession of some doubt as the fruit of this interchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler. And this text gives that assurance to you here this morning, if you are somehow doubting that all of this is worth it, your investment, maybe it's just, maybe it's too much. You need convincing this morning that it's not too much, that it is worth your sacrifice, that it is worth storing up treasure in heaven and beloved, so this speaks to you as well. Because our, G, our Lord tells us, doesn't he, that there's no one who has forsaken homes or family or kindred or anything required of, of, of abandonment that you will not receive that many times over. And so those are the two primary persons that this text is going to confront the good moral person that's right up next to the kingdom of God that needs to take the next step needs to uh, profess Christ put their faith in Christ their trust in Christ they need to repent of their sins and and do what is needed what is necessary of them to what put treasure up in heaven and those here this morning that have long served our Lord and Savior that sometimes thinks that it's just too hard, it's too costly, what's going to happen? We're going to, hopefully this text of scripture will incite you and encourage you and motivate you to continue onward in your service of Christ. Now there is certainly, as I said, a chord struck with easy believism. Easy believism really became infectious to the American church after the Second Great Awakening. It was the Second Great Awakening that had moved the church, if you will, from its doctrinal, expositional understanding of the gospel that is objective truth to emotional truth. 
That's when it became acceptable for those coming to Christ would wail and moan and cry for days, maybe even weeks on end. And that was the test that they were truly converted rather than what they had believed and what they professed and what they had set their mind and hearts to after the fact. The louder you wailed and the more tears you shed was the best of signs that you were a believer in Christ. Now those ideas and that philosophy still infects the church today. There are those that would shed a tear at the hymn Amazing Grace. But that alone is not enough to confirm whether or not a person is a believer in Jesus. Again, what we are looking to see and what we're going to learn as we work through this text is that there's more required than just a, a, an outburst of emotion. Emotions in and of itself is nothing wrong with it. It's the context of it. It's the meaning of it. And we certainly, if we're not to rest in the words of our repentance, we certainly ought not rest in our emotions when we say, well, that was my repentance, we shouldn't rest in that either. What about this free grace movement? Well, the free grace movement is the idea that you can come and put your faith in Jesus Christ and there's no requirements of you whatsoever. And in fact, we wouldn't call it free grace at that point because we do believe in free grace the prophet Isaiah long ago spoke of coming by without money, right? So it's certainly free in that sense that it cost Christ his life, not ours. But what they really mean by it is cheap. Cheap. It's not worth anything. See, the grace that we're offered in Christ is is. All throughout scripture, particularly in the book of Hebrews, it's a grace that's worthy of a sanctified life. It's a grace worthy of a sacrificial life. As Paul said, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Be sanctified. As your father in heaven is holy, you be holy. You be set apart. That this grace is rich, it's substance, it has a substance to it that, that when we come in contact with it, we know it is worthy of all that we are. And so we have to address this idea of easy believism that again permeates the Western church, particularly the American church. These large Gatherings, and it's not, it's, it's not a condemnation of large churches. That's not my point. My point is, though, just large gatherings in and of itself doesn't make it a church. And just because somebody wakes up one day and feels like they're called to preach the gospel with no confirmation of any of the visible church whatsoever, that doesn't make them a preacher either. And there's plenty of that going around. We've 
may have come in contact with this idea. I certainly have as a pastor when, when people would come and want to join the church and I would ask them where their membership was. And number one, they have a very low view, if any view of membership. And number two, if they do have one and it's low, it's more or less, well, we, we may attend one of these churches that, you know, if you attend the church more than three times on the fourth time, you're a member. You're just declared a member. And these churches have certainly found difficulty. Those who have adopted these ministerial practices have come under great testing of the Lord because what happens when there's sin that springs up within the congregation? How do you handle it? How do you address it? How do you hold members accountable when they have never declared that they are accountable to you? Even when the difficulty of having members that take vows and when they find themselves in some moral problem, they say, well, you know what? I don't owe you anything and I'm out of here. Sort of that sinful human nature seems to, to, to spring up, doesn't it? Well, all that to simply say, beloved, that this text of Scripture certainly in a roundabout way, it puts to death this idea of easy believism because what's required, what Jesus tells the rich young ruler is required of him to have treasure in heaven. So he deals with that. But he also deals with this idea of this free grace, this cheap grace that's out there. That is, oh yeah, you can just, you can just haphazardly make a profession of faith and you know, carry the card around in your pocket or just, you know, if you ever struggle with any doubt, just remember this day and you'll be okay. Now, I want you to think on those things as we work through the text, okay? Because I don't want you to suffer from that error. I don't want you... I, listen, beloved, I don't want you to stand before the Lord on that day, not under this ministry, and, and, and act as if you never heard these things before. I don't want you to stand before the Lord and go, what, wait, what? when did we see you naked, Lord? When did we see you thirsty? When, did we, when were you in jail? I didn't know. I don't want that. I want us all to be able to give a reasonable answer to our faith and who we believe in and why we believe it and what is the reward of those who do believe these things and believe in Christ. Well, let's look at the verse. And I'm going to give you, I want you to put your eyes on verse 22. I'm going to give you a a paraphrase of verse 22 in how the modern mind reads verse 22. Now, we know what verse 22 says. We have it in front of us. But I'm going to give you the modern mindset of interpretation because of what's been permeated with this free grace and this easy believism. This is something that I just came up with to help us move forward in the text. Here's, here's an interpretation of the modern mind on that verse. It says, one thing, now this is Jesus, one thing I think would help you. Now this is Jesus addressing the rich young ruler. One thing I think would help you at your leisure, go sell some of your possessions and donate it to your favorite ministry because you don't want to miss your tax deduction. Then as you are able, 
Schedule time here and there to serve Christ. Of course, make it easy on yourself. I'm afraid that's how the modern mind reads verse 22. Why does the modern mind read verse 22 that way? Because we have been inundated with the error that it's all about us. It's all about us. It's all about our leisure. It's all about our happiness. It's all about our comfort. It's not about our sacrifice. It's not about our consistency and what it means to hold ourselves accountable to a profession of faith. If it's inconvenient, then let's just change things so that it can be convenient. But I don't need to change my doctrine, and I certainly don't want to change my practice. Now, you listen to me. You young people listen up. This text teaches us there is only one way to come to Jesus. Even though he's dealing particularly with the rich young ruler, there's a general rule that will apply to every one of us. It's not at your convenience. Treasure in heaven is not going to come at your convenience. It only comes at your sacrifice. It comes at your investment. It comes at your purchasing this in this world that you are forwarding this love for God, this love for neighbor in the sacrificial service of God and others. You are laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven and there's no other way to do it. There's no other way to do it. You can't get to the judgment day and say, okay, I'm ready now to do this. No, it's over at that point. It's too late. And yet I have, and again, I mean, you can hear, you can actually hear people. Well, one thing I think would help you, that is Jesus is just your therapist. He's just your therapist. He's not here to sovereignly, ministerially, as our great mediator, our prophet, priest, and king, to lead us in truth and knowledge and understanding, to lead us in the green pastures and the still waters, which ultimately will end up in eternal life. Oh, he's your therapist. He just wants you to feel good. So at your leisure. Brothers and sisters, go sell some of your possessions, not all of them. And give to the ministry of your choice. Now we're going to look at why Jesus didn't say any of that. And so I have a sort of a two-point sermon. First is the precept. We're going to look at verse 22. Verse 22 is made up of a precept and it's made up of a promise. A precept and a promise. Well, let's begin looking at the precept. Now, in the precept, in verse 22, Jesus again shows us how to deal with someone who is sincerely wrong. Sincerely wrong. There's, there's, 
there's no boisterous arrogance. He's not flamboyant in his sin at all. He is just sincerely wrong, and Jesus is tenderly and lovingly dealing with him. And Jesus, instead of just laying out, I mean, I'm sure most of us when we read this will say, okay, well, you know, Jesus could have just destroyed him and taught him all about the law and the secret sins of his heart and all that. But you're right, he could have. And yet we have to take Jesus's example here and notice that in these engagements, beloved, oftentimes we only have room for what? Maybe one thing that we need to bring to somebody's attention. Not 10, one And what does Jesus do here? Jesus wisely and tenderly puts his finger upon the very idolatry of his heart. How does he do this? He begins to expose this young man. He's exposing to not just the young man, but even those that would be standing there listening that he does not love God. He's not obeying the commandments out of the love of God. He's not loving his neighbor as himself, which he believes he has faithfully done since he was a youth. And and you can see, I mean, right down in your notes, 1 John chapter 2, we could address some of these things. But so let's look at this precept and address a wrong interpretation of this verse. What kind of precept is it? Well, there are general precepts in the scriptures, that is, there are general evangelical precepts in the scriptures, and they apply to all of us. This is not one of those. This is a particular precept, meaning that you and I do not have this command that Jesus gives this rich young ruler to go sell all that we have, give to the poor, and go and follow Jesus. Why is that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus is touching on this young man's heart. He's addressing this young man's sins. And he puts his finger upon the idol of his heart in in this precept that Jesus gives him, which is what? The conditions of eternal life. The things he should do which is what he asked for. Now let's deal with this kind of gen- this, this personal precept here. Notice what Jesus says. Number one, he tells him to go. Two, he tells him to sell. Three, he tells him to distribute it to the poor. And then four, he says, come and follow me. Now, there are four things that are in this precept. Now, in the context here, Jesus gives him this imperative, this this immediate command to go. Now, when he says this, this is something that ought to be taken in this literal fashion. He's saying, don't wait around. As soon as I get through talking, you must go take care of these things. It is something that needs to be done now. This is an imperative. This is essential. This is a fire issue. You need to go now and sell your possessions. 
Well, why would Jesus tell him to do this now? Well, first of all, he says, well, how, what can I do to have eternal life? He says, well, you can come and follow me. Okay, well, listen, Jesus is in the last year of his ministry. He's in the last year of his earthly ministry. How in the world is the rich young ruler, if, he, if he's, you know, not, not going to take care of this stuff immediately, how's he going to walk with Jesus? How's he going to be a disciple of Jesus? How's he going to follow Jesus if he doesn't go take care of these things that are holding him back? So all of this is addressed to this rich young ruler. Jesus said, look, go, go take care of these things. Now, there's another aspect of the context here in this verse. Number one, he's a young man. We, the, the text does not suggest in any fashion he has a family. What does the text tell us? It says in verse 23, when he, when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. It seems like he's a single person. Another aspect of this is what is Jesus doing as he's going up to Jerusalem, as he's making his way to that day in which he's going to be betrayed and crucified? What does he tell his disciples? Well, he tells them that, listen, animals have dens, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was not a possessor of earthly things like that. And what he's telling the young man, look, you want to follow me? Go get rid of this stuff. You're not going to need it. And you can come follow me. You can be a part of this ministry. You're not going to need those things because we, we, we're not doing that. We have been walking through the countryside. There have been those that have come that have met our needs. God has miraculously blessed the fish and the loaves, so to speak. God's taken care of us. Go sell all of this because you're not going to need it for this work that I've got for you to do. So there was a small window of opportunity for the rich young ruler to really walk with Jesus and to sit at his feet and learn. He didn't have need of these possessions because that wasn't the nature of Christ's ministry. Christ's ministry was truly that of someone who owed, you know, owned nothing, if you will. And he had no place to lay his head. That's Luke 9, 58. I think it's one of the reformers that said there's no verse in scripture that has put more in the monastery than verse 22. Meaning that that verse has been used by many to make a vow of poverty and subject themselves to a life in a monastery. Whether they pray full time, whether they sing full time, chant full, whatever the case may be, some type of service here or there. But they said no other verse is responsible for putting more men in the ministry. Now, that wasn't a positive, it was a negative. Meaning that precept wasn't for them to do that. And in one sense, beloved, the thing that comes to my mind is that virtue singling is nothing new. You know, declaring oneself as virtuous, look at me, is nothing new. During the, um, the, the, the heydays of the philosophers, so to speak, 
there would be philosophers that would go out upon a lake or the seashore and they would cast their riches into the water and declare themselves disciple of some philosopher or another and then walk with them. I mean, again, demonstrating I am so committed to wisdom. I am so committed to this, this ancient wisdom that I shall go out here and again, cast my riches into the water and then I will go and give myself over to this instruction. Virtue singing. That's all grandstanding. That's all look at me. That's all that is of no avail to no avail. There's nothing, there's no heavenly reward stored up for that action, for that work. So we need to know what kind of work we need to commit ourselves to, right? There's a lot of virtue singling going all all over the place. But what matters is what does God require? What does the kingdom of heaven require of us? And we see that Jesus is telling the rich young ruler that he needs to go and he needs to do it now. We'll get into an application of that. Obviously, it should make sense to us, beloved. Today is the day of salvation, is it not? If you're sitting here this morning and you're that good person and you're right up against eternal life, but you don't possess it, today's the day. Today is the day to recognize that you can't earn that place in heaven. There's, there's nothing that you have that God wants but you. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your status. He doesn't need your office. He doesn't need your youth. He needs you. Second Corinthians chapter six and verse two, Paul writes, he says, for he says the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Luke 12, verse 20, speaking of the parable of the vineyard owner, he says, and God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Beloved, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to the commands of Christ, what's needed is immediate obedience. When you go home today, as you've gone home every other time as you've come to worship, how many times have we become guilty of putting things off? The things that are required of us, the things that we should be doing. We keep thinking, well, it'll be for another time. Well, I need to be a little older. Well, I need to have a little more. Or, well, I need to have a little less. Well, I need a little bit of a different opportunity. I don't like these things. I want something else. I don't want what God has in front of me. I'm looking for something else. I'm just going to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. But yet, that's not what we are to do. That second imperative, sell, 
Jesus here touches the idol. He puts his finger directly upon the God of his heart, doesn't he? What is he telling him to do here? When he gives him this precept to go sell, what is he asking the rich young ruler to do? He's asking him to repent of his idolatry. By going and selling all that he possesses, Jesus is teaching him, this is what repentance looks like for you. This is how you should get rid of the false God that you've erected in your life. You are trusting in your riches, your joy, your peace, your gladness flows from your riches. What, did it, what does the text tell us? He went away sad because he was extremely rich. He wasn't sad because he didn't have eternal life. He was sad because he had to get rid of the riches. You see the difference? By doing this, Jesus is touching on those root sins, those deep-rooted sins, those sins that everything else flows out of. I mean, again, we see it here. We see that his stinginess flows out of his idolatry of money. Brothers and sisters, listen, I wanna wanna state this. Money's not evil, but it can be the source of it. It's not wrong to have a savings. It's not wrong to have retirement. It's not wrong to set up and provide for your family. None of that is wrong. However, if those things are the excuses one makes in order not to serve Jesus, then they are idols. And they become putrid, don't they? That which is good, that which is tended for good, that can be used for good, becomes putrid in God's sight. Why? Because they are nothing more than another God to you. First Timothy chapter six, verse 17, Paul writes, he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. He just said, what does the apostle Paul say? Riches can be enjoyed. And they are even given so that they may be enjoyed, but they're not given to be a God. We're not to put our emphatic trust in them. Beloved, in this economy that we're living in and with this national debt that we're facing as a country, listen, we may all be suffering financially here in the next few years. It's a reality and it's happened to many nations before us. That's that providential sort of poverty that comes to nations and families due to no, no misgivings of their own. They're faithful, they pray, they all these things. They're not worshiping their money, but yet in God's providence, somehow these things are taken away from them. It could be a health problem. I've known families lose everything because of health. Another family crisis where families have poured out to help other family members in their dire straits also has wreaked, well, havoc 
upon their, well, their financial um, success. It happens. It's of no fault of their own. This is a providential situation, similar to Job. And then there are those that, well, God puts to the test. Like what Jesus is doing with the rich young ruler. Is he not putting him to the test? Is he not putting him to the test to see whether or not he truly desires everlasting life and was willing to make that earthly investment for it? Sure he is. And it is the prerogative of God to put one to the test because he's God. And he is the rightful one who can come and test his creatures in order that we might learn what is in our hearts. First John chapter two and verse nine, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. In first John three seventeen, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, beloved, what we must come to grips with is what Jesus is teaching the, the rich young ruler here is that he's not the sovereign over those riches. He's the steward of them. There's a big difference. We're stewards, beloved, over the gifts of God. Whether those gifts are spiritual or physical, we're stewards. And our stewardship is guided by our discipleship. Our stewardship is guided by our discipleship. What we believe is becoming of the Christian. What a Christian ought to look like. What a, a Christian ought to do, ought to help, ought to be in favor of. And again, I'm not going into the great detail of what is what, is, what um, Thomas Manton called the devil's poor. I thought was an interesting phrase. The devil's poor. And what he meant by that was there are those who are poor because they serve the devil. Drunkenness, carousing, drugs, prostitution, gambling, all of that riotous living, all of that lifestyle that does nothing but just exploit and just spend and spend and spend. Thomas Mann said, that's the devil's poor. And yes, he says their help should be very mitigated, but they still should be helped, but not to the degree others who have suffered providentially poverty or even the faithful who come under certain conditions where they find themselves in a great need and we have the ability to help. You know, brothers and sisters, I've seen Fathers, with all great intentions, ruin their families financially because they didn't understand that the same obligation, they were always wanting to help the world, but they never helped their family. Brothers and sisters, Paul tells us in Timothy, 1 Timothy, 
that the one who doesn't aid his family is worse than an unbeliever. That we ought to first be concerned about our family, those that are really next to us, those that we have the greatest moral responsibility for. We ought to take care of them. We ought to minister to them. And then whatever we have left over as God sees fit and makes for a provision for us, an opportunity, which means an opportunity that we can help others. But we don't cast the family aside in order to go help people we don't even know. That's ungodly. It's immoral. And that's not what Jesus is telling the rich young ruler to do. And he tells him to give to the poor. It's interesting. And again, this is part of that repentance. This is the, this is the path of repentance, right? Turning from our idolatry to Jesus. Not only go sell what you have, but do something with it. Go give it to those who are in need. Now, this is important. And, and it goes back to my, my interpretation of the text of the modern Christian mind. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is telling them is go and distribute what you have to the poor to those that cannot help you back. There's no advantage to you. This is of no advantage. When you give to the destitute, when you give to the poor, you can expect nothing back. Even Jesus tells us on the Sermon on the Mount, what, even, even the natural man loves those who love him, helps those who help him, but what Jesus is saying is, hey, this is what repentance looks like in your life. You go and you get rid of that idol in your heart. You go and divest yourself of this false God. And now you go help others that have no opportunity of helping you back. Demonstrate that you're trusting solely in me and not in your possessions. Because again, he could have easily used those possessions to help people that would turn right around and do what? Help him back. That is, yes, I'm getting rid of it, but not really. That's not repentance. Repentance is a break, brothers and sisters, from sin, a cutting off. I'm trusting in riches. I tell you what, go sell Give it to those who are in need and those who can't help you back. Cut yourself off from the trusting these riches for your comfort and peace. And Jesus tells him in that other fourth imperative, follow me, serve me, walk with me. Now, brothers and sisters, listen. That's not going to be an easy life. This young man's used to being pampered. This young man, I'm sure, has a wonderful house with all of those modern amenities of the day. And yet now he is going to forsake all of that, liquidate it, forsake it, give it to those in need, and come and walk with Jesus all over the Galilean countryside? 
that doesn't sound very convenient, fun. I like mission trips to Hawaii, the Caribbean. They need Jesus down there. Scotland. Of course, there's people that need Jesus there in those places. But brothers and sisters, I hope you can see repentance is a cutting off and a turning from sin, from the gods that you have put your trust in, now to the living and true God in Christ and serving him and following him, whether it's convenient or not. But what is, what's, the, what's the promise? I mean, what's the motivation? It's a hard commandment to him. It's hard. We know it's hard because of the way he received it. It made him sad. But it was also hard for the disciples to hear it. Because now they're examining themselves. And they're wondering if they've repented like that. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus adds this promise. He says in verse 22, distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You shall have treasure in heaven. The emphatic, you will have treasure in heaven if you repent of your sins and follow me. You want treasure in heaven? Well, beloved, listen to me. Four things that I'll touch on before we close this morning. What's the immediate need in your life as it, as it addresses your discipleship with Jesus Christ? What's immediate? What do you need to do? What is it the Lord has been laying upon your heart? What, I mean, listen, I know there's the one that's close to heaven that doesn't have it yet. But now I'm speaking also to those who already possess heaven and their concern. They need, they need to be rejuvenated. You need encouragement. You need to be motivated to continue on because you are storing up treasure in heaven. Beloved, we must walk in this repentance that we see here. We must continue to die to self. We must continue to die to this world because the love of God does not inhabit those who love this world and the things in this world. The love of the Father is not in them. That we must constantly be laying ourselves before the throne of grace in the word of God. We must be asking ourselves, Lord, how must, what, what sin do I need to give up? What sin that's been plaguing me that I've just been toying with? It's kind of like that pet gerbil. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's cute, nice, and it's okay when all the company comes over and they go, oh, can I hold it? Yeah, but, and we just put it away and we act like it doesn't exist. Oh, and then we get it out whenever it's convenient again. That's the way we do our sin. When it rises up, well, I'm just a human. I'm just, you know, I'm just a sinner. It's interesting that something that's so very true has been used in such a list licentious way to excuse everything we do. I'm just a sinner. That's not taking care of business. That's not what Jesus is commanding us to do. Go deal with it and deal with it now. 
Secondly, what is that? What is the pet sin? What is your pet sin? What is the sin that you don't want to deal with? Maybe, yeah, I mean, reputation. It could be a number of things that the Lord says, you know what? You've been, you know, Lord, you've been long suffering. These are the kind of prayers privately. I've been, Lord, you've been long suffering with me. I've been dealing with this sin. And you are, Lord, I've not had any advancement in my life over it because I've really not taken the time to, to pursue it. It's not convenient. It's too hard. I mean, that's certainly what this young man would have thought. This is just way too much. I don't want this type of investment. So brothers and sisters, we need to ask, what's the immediate need? What's the sin? How can I focus also on others and not just myself? Because that's what repent. We don't sin in a vacuum and we don't do justice in a vacuum. What did Zacchaeus say? Lord, I have restored fourfold from those that I've stolen from. That's what salvation looked like for Zacchaeus. What did salvation look like for the woman at the well? To move out of the apartment that she was living with a man because she had had five husbands and the one she was with was not her husband. And Jesus tenderly dealt with her too. What did repentance look like there? That she would mortify those lusts and move out of that apartment and begin to focus on what? Justice and righteousness and holiness and serving the Lord. Whatever that looks like for her. So brothers and sisters, I'm asking you, what's the sin that entangles you? And here's the, here's the promise and here's your motivation. Brothers and sisters, you will not only benefit from the mortification of those idols in your heart here and now in this life. You will. You will. God's world is designed for the moral to be successful. Now, that's just the moral natural person how about the moral spiritual person who's walking with Jesus as you begin to endeavor to put these things to death in your life to to move onward in your sanctification not become sort of lethargic in it you've kind of stalled in it no we're going to press onward I'm going to deal with these other idols that are constantly springing up in my life I'm going to put them to death I'm going to also work at not just focusing on myself but I have a duty and responsibility to my neighbor as well beginning with my family I'm going to be the husband I need to be I'm going to be the wife I need to be I'm going to be the son, the daughter I need to be, the brother and the sister, the aunt, the uncle, the grandparent I need to be. I'm going to be the neighbor to my brother and sister because that's pleasing to God. That demonstrates that it's not all about me. And I'm not virtue signaling here. I'm just a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you will, you will store away treasure in heaven by doing those things. Brothers and sisters, if we're told, 
if we just make this financial investment, it'll, it'll pay off a hundredfold. Most of us are all about it. But we're talking about spiritual investment, which is even worth more. It's worth more. Why? Because this life is but short. It's short. It's but a va- It's but a breath. It's but a breath. Eternity's forever. Which is the better investment? So I'm going to ask you. It's never going to be convenient to serve Jesus. Does that matter to you? It's not at your leisure. He's the sovereign king of glory. You're the disciple. He's the creator. You're the created. He doesn't owe you. You owe him. And brothers and sisters, it's never going to be a great and perfect day to come to Jesus or to repent of sin and come. It just needs to be done. There's no, there's no reason for us to go away sad, but to embrace these, this precept as it relates to us and walk with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us where we have been touched by easy believism. Lord, forgive us if we have adopted or entertained this idea that, Lord, you are at our beck and call and we'll serve you whenever we feel like it or whenever it's convenient for us. Forgive us for this. Those are sins. But Lord, give us a renewed interest today in discipleship and the cost of it and what it is to store up treasure in heaven. Lord, I pray that we would all search our hearts and examine ourselves and address and deal with those idols that have sprung up in our lives, Lord, that have kept us from fully resting in you, trusting in you. Lord, let us not trust any of those blessings that you have bestowed upon us, Lord, that are to be used for enjoyment, for service, to help our brothers and sisters. There are a number of things, Lord, to use riches for that are good. May we do that in Christ and not put our trust in those things. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you. And, Lord, once again, I pray and if there's any here this morning that consider themselves to be good, moral people, and yet they still do not possess eternal life, I pray today they've seen the path of repentance and they will repent of their idolatry and they will embrace Jesus Christ. They will turn from their sins, Lord, and turn to you in their ways. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.